Well, let me welcome everyone to the virtual planes. Uh, very excited for today's uh, discussion around securing space and addressing the cyber risk. Uh, couldn't ask for a, a better group of speakers than, uh, than we're privileged to uh, have join us today. Before doing that, uh, those of you, my name's Frank Salufo and I direct the McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure at Auburn University, War Eagle. Uh, for those of us who follow our work, you know this is not a new theme for us, but what is new is we've collaborated with uh, wonderful partners at the Cyber Solarium Commission 2.0 or CSC 2.0, uh, as well as the Foundation for De Defense of Democracies. We're also going to be releasing a paper, more on that soon and, and later, but, but at the outset, I did want to thank the uh, amazing work by uh, Sharon Kardash on my staff, Kelsey Shields on my staff, of course, my co-author, uh, Mark Montgomery, who we'll be hearing from soon, uh, and the amazing staff at FDD, uh, led by the one and only Annie Fixler. So without further ado, I want to jump into the conversation. To kick us off, we're going to have uh, Mike Rogers framing a number of the uh, a number of the pressing issues facing our country right now. And uh, uh, as everyone I think viewing knows, uh, Mike was not only a former congressman, but he uh, was chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He is a true uh, leader on national security issues. I think we first got to interact uh, around the early, early Huawei discussions and uh, in the words of Mark Twain, whereas history may not repeat itself, it tends to rhyme. I think we have uh, a lot of similar challenges we're, we're grappling with uh, today. Mike came to uh, Congress as a former Army officer and an FBI agent, and really thrilled to have you join us today, Mike. And 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 your voice, I think, is so important for uh, for our country to hear. So, what I thought I'd do is rather than jump right into the discussion. I'd love to have you frame uh, the issues. Obviously, where the Communist Party of China is uh, in, in some of these issues, and more broadly, why are we where we are and what do we need to do to get to where we ought to be? So pretty broad question there. <laughs> well, thanks, Frank. And thanks for the great work that you're, you're doing there at Auburn. It's incredible. I think there may be a Rogers wing in Auburn mainly because my brother put all four of his children through Auburn University. I told him, you, you should at least have a wing named after you for that, uh, that amazing feat. Uh, they all got great educations. They're all going out doing great things. Most of them are engineers uh, of one sort or another. You know, space, let's talk about it for a minute. You know, the first real wake-up call when, uh, when I was part of that national security structure in Congress in, in the United States, 2000, roughly about 2007, when the Chinese Communist Party fired a missile uh, and hit a satellite, happened to be theirs, uh, to, to prove that they had this uh, anti-satellite capability. Uh, and we all started saying, hmm, this is a bit of a game changer. Remember, prior to really those early 2000 years, the United States was dominant in space, no other really competitor, no near competitor prior to that. So we did what we wanted to do in space and built those architecture in space based on the fact that uh, we were unthreatened and undeterred. Uh, and that allowed us some immense capability in our warfighting capabilities. You know, smart planes, smart ships, smart soldiers, smart bombs, all of that space-based. And so the Chinese Communist Party for 
several decades now has been saying, hey, we're going to compete with the United States militarily. Uh, we're going to create a blue water Navy. We're going to do all of these things. And they looked at, well, okay, what are their strengths, the United States, and what are their weaknesses? And they came to a conclusion that space was both a strength and a weakness. So they invested a lot of money early on developing capabilities for anti-satellite uh, technology, uh, both ground-based missiles, lasers, and anti-satellites themselves. And I don't, you know, again, not, not to stir up a vision that this is about uh, you know, a Star Wars type fight in the in space, it's more, think of it more of a bulldozer pushing a satellite off its course or sapping its fuel or destroying its sensors uh, in a small but effective way uh, is what you're going to see in the near term. And China has stated in that near term, they'd like to control space between Earth and the moon. Lots of strategic reasons to have that happen. And so when we started looking at this, it was hard to get people's attention, even in the U.S. government, about, hey, we, we have this big and growing problem. And I'm not talking about the folks who are doing the work every day who could see this happening. I'm talking about the investment that it was going to take in a couple of things in the United States. One, we needed to make an investment that, uh, that also protects the very expensive things that we were you know, firing up on rockets uh, into space. Really expensive operations. Are we doing enough to protect those assets uh, in space? How do we protect those assets? How do we protect assets that are already up there that don't have new technology that allows them to do, uh, to, to protect themselves in a case uh, of someone trying to get that satellite out of the, uh, out of orbit in any way? Are we resilient enough? Can we fire up an architecture in low earth orbit fast and quick so that if uh, somebody wants to take out some of our capability in low Earth uh, orbit, we would have the capability to very quickly create a new architecture, fire up a new satellite, get things to happen at almost real-time speed. Are we ready for that? Have we developed that? And now you have commercial space integrating with our uh, military and security infrastructure in a way that I think is very positive, but it also has some challenges and some hurdles that we're going to have to get over, mainly because we've inherited this legacy system of space that said, hey, we're you know, unchallenged and undeterred, this seems crazy to me that we may have to have bodyguard satellites, uh, which some people are calling them, uh, which may be a very real possibility very real, uh, very soon to make sure that we can maintain capabilities. And then you just go right down the list from that, Frank, uh, the cybersecurity threat isn't necessarily just disruption. And certainly that's a concern. But what happens if the information that is coming down has been corrupted in some way? Uh, and so your positioning system has you in one place uh, and the folks who are making battlefield decisions or, or seaborne decisions uh, are getting information that has that battle group or that ship or that submarine in a very different place because they've been able to, through cyber attack, uh, been able to disrupt the information flow and insert packets in there that uh, lead to bad decisions on, the, on, on both the sea and land uh, in other places. Uh, real possibility, unfortunately. And so trusting information becomes now a huge issue. So disruption, we have plans. We understood the ability to lose assets and other things. Now, what do you do when it comes to distrusting the information you're getting because you've had a successful cyber penetration of your network somewhere? And so you start thinking the next lay layer down. Okay, okay, this goes. We know the Chinese and the Russians have uh, have designs on trying to take out a lot of our satellite capability early on in any kind of a conflict. Uh, do we have the supply chain to sustain 
uh, rapid deployment and resiliency of, of the architecture that we have deployed. You know, there's a pretty, that's a very hard question for the United States and one I don't believe we have gotten right exactly yet. So if you take those issues just in that order, you can see where we're gonna have to act faster, uh, we're gonna have to deploy faster, uh, we're going to have to have robust cyber defense upfront uh, and during in any conflict, uh, and we're also gonna have to have a supply chain that does not rely on a single other country if we believe uh, that when that balloon goes up, or hopefully not, but if it went up, uh, we'd have the ability to sustain our space advantage. Uh, all of those things are hard, uh, I don't believe the government today is configured for a fast-paced, rapid inter, uh, interoperability between commercial and space. And there's a lot of reasons that that legacy kind of keeps nipping us in the backside, if you will. Uh, and I don't believe that we have taken seriously enough uh, what happens when we lose key pieces of our uh, satellite architecture. How do we make up for that? So it's not just defending it, but what do you do if it goes out? And so those are the kinds of things I think uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about today. I'm not saying it's over and we haven't done things and the U.S. government hasn't done things they have. China moves at a very different pace. When they show up, uh, the whole family's there, right? In the U.S., we don't quite do that, right? So when they show up, they have the diplomacy arm, the economic arm, the military arm, uh, the intelligence arms, all shows up with them hand in hand. They skip down the street together. Here in the United States, we have to have meetings across different sectors uh, and we have to have uh, some kind of a, a, a group hug meeting to get to where we need to go for rapid deployment of anything. We have to change that. I'm not saying we should adopt the communist system. What I am saying is we should adopt an American innovation system that allows us to act quicker and faster because the Chinese are moving out. They know that they have a slight advantage in the fact that they can rapidly deploy and innovate after some theft of intellectual property, guess what? We need to be able to move equally as fast to counter that growing uh, threat in space. Thank you, Mike. Very Frank. sobering thoughts, uh, uh, as well as very, uh, I, I mean, you covered, uh, covered the space, you covered the waterfront in, a, in an incredible way in a short amount of time. And I'm glad that you brought up, it's not, when, when most I think most Americans are not aware of just how dependent our way of life, obviously from a military standpoint, economically from a, a, an assured positioning, navigation, timing. Uh, I don't want to sound geeky here, but clocks do run the world. If you can mess with that, you can be uh, ahead of anyone. Um, and, and we need to invest accordingly. Now, our report does touch on some of the streamlining process, which I think is, uh, I, I'm glad you brought up, as well as sort of harnessing innovation in the commercial sector rather than treating them as, a, as the stepchild, having them as a genuine partner in all of this. And, and that's where I think we can leapfrog uh, anyone. Uh, when we put our uh, heart to it and our and our minds to it, but but I, I, I but I would be curious in terms of I see uh, it, behind you your Chip War uh, the the book and when we look at semiconductors uh, and we look at the dependence that uh, uh, the whole world has on Taiwan in terms of production and obviously 
the potential uh, implications of, uh, of of what's going on in the south in the in the in the South Sea and and, and the like. What 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 should we be doing more around supply chain? And then I'm going to ask you a very pointed question. If you were commander in chief today, what are the three things you would like to see done immediately? Uh, well, in writ large or related to our topic? <laughs> That's a very big Related question. to our topic. Related to yeah, our topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have three things and just about everything, as my wife would tell you. Uh, <laughs> I would... <laughs> And I'm an eternal optimist. She also says that may be a genetic defect in me, but I do believe we can do this if we unleash American innovation. I, a, we, the three most important things are we really, you know, we've had some fits and starts on the way the government handles cyber risk across the entire US government enterprise. Uh, and we just have not gotten it right yet. And I know there's been some small and important steps. We just have not gotten it right yet. I don't think we can wait too much longer to have a consolidated effort uh, on things like uh, cyber defense. And remember why this is important, because the private sector is playing an important role in space. Uh, the defense is, you know, they can pr protect their networks. The Defense Department does a pretty good job of protecting their networks, not perfect. But imagine now you multiply your, your threat vector here by adding all of these suppliers and everybody in the chain that helps build a satellite. Uh, and now you're dependent on their cyber protection and resiliency to keep you safe, to avoid getting into your networks later on. That is a huge challenge. We haven't, I don't believe we've gotten it right yet. We have to do that. Secondly, I would make sure uh, very quickly that we create an architecture using uh, our private sector and commercial enterprise to get these low earth orbit architectures so that it makes it very unappealing for the Chinese or the Russians to start taking out these low earth satellites. They know you, you can get one, but you won't get it for long. Uh, and we need to build that kind of res resiliency. And the last part of that is the supply chain piece, I would say early. We need to friendshore uh, and we need to build uh, capability, not capacity necessarily, but capability in the United States. We have atrophied ourselves in a way that's very, very hurtful to the ongoing national security protection of the United States in many ways, chips being a part of that, a big part of that. Uh, and you think those microprocessors, how important it is. Again, there's certain types of microprocessors, even the ones that aren't very boutique and, and, and uh, specialized, but those microprocessors need, we need to have the best and latest uh, capacity and ability in the United States. Remember, if this goes up, it's gonna disrupt commerce and transportation and all kinds of things. And we should always plan for the worst, hope for the best. Uh, and matter of fact, work for the best, not hope for the best. Uh, and so in that process, we need to make sure uh, that we have that, that uh, capacity. Uh, and, and again, cyber, we don't have a work, cyber workforce that's gonna meet the demand today. And I argue we need to change that as a part of this. So it's a very complicated, multi-levered, uh, layered effort that we have to go through. And I believe we can do all at once. Uh, the US government has done amazing things when we have a threat on the horizon. I can't think of a bigger strategic threat to the economic and national security prosperity of the United States than what China faces to us today. And they're telling us that. We probably ought to listen to them. Mike, thank you for your uh, sobering comments. Keep working for the best, as you said. Keep fighting the good fight. And, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention 
Auburn is represented by the great Mike Rogers uh, of, of Alabama as well. And on my board is Admiral Mike Rogers. So we've got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of Rogers is, uh, um, but you, but you I can't have enough agree. Mike Rogers, Frank, you can't have enough Mike Rogers in national security. I think. Well, our next event is going to be Mike Rogers cubed. So it's going to be the three of you uh, talking since uh, uh, all three are incredibly informed. So thank you, Mike, and uh, and keep fighting the good fight. We're going to go into uh, a little more depth of discussion, uh, uh, unpacking some of uh, Mike's excellent uh, um, preview here. And, and, and we'll start with Sue Gordon, who I will very quickly introduce. Uh, Sue, as I think everyone knows, is the consummate intelligence officer. She's led... Uh, um, She's been in leadership positions at uh, the National Geospace Intelligence Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, uh, and also served in the highest civilian uh, uh, intelligence officer role as Principal Deputy, Nas PD, Principal Deputy National Intelligence uh, uh, Director. So it's almost like NPPD in, uh, in, uh, <laughs> at, at CIS, what is now CISA. But, but Sue, I, I, I mean, I've had the privilege of learning from Sue for a number of years and and, 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 and quite honestly, the country is better off with uh, the role that you played here. So I'd, I'd like for you to unpack a little bit of what Mike uh, discussed here and, and maybe uh, specifically sort of hone in on how does this all evolve and, and what are some of the wild cards? I, I, I know you've done some uh, amazing work at InQtel, where you looked at different ways that uh, the intelligence community can work with the private sector to 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 drive solutions, and and rather than me leading the witness, Sue, why don't you jump on in? Well, one thanks, Frank, for having me. Um, I, clearly, I need to pay you more so I don't have to follow uh, Chairman Rogers next time. Um, let's see if I can uh, give a little context. I love that that Mike talked about advantage. Um, it, it, it actually is my favorite way to think about national security because it forces you into a temporal context. Um, and if you take this concept of advantage and play it through um, the history of space, that neatly enough is, is my personal history, so I've seen it all, um, you kind of go uh, early on, you have the United States and Russia nation states using space for national security advantage. The United States was super dominant in the capabilities that we were able to put in space that gave us ability not only to see beyond the horizon, but to project power um, to for the point of purpose of deterrence, but also enablement of mission activities. Um, it was one or two of us for almost the whole of the history we're talking about until really in the late 90s when you start seeing China, Japan, others coming on the scene, but they were not big actors. So it was two countries playing out the game of advantage, and I think it was disproportionately on the American side. Simultaneously, you see the bleed through of technology and you see the rise of commercial space. And you start with Landsat and you go through what we have now, and now you start thinking about societal advantage and space as an infrastructure that allows human activity in really interesting ways to see their work, the Earth from Earth observation to communication, to communication at speed, to communication 
at reach um, to now being able to use it for change detection in really interesting ways. So nation state actors, few to many, commercial, narrow missions to now dominant mission. And if you look at just Ukraine, you can now see that the benefit and the advantage of commercial and national systems are very clear. The effect of that is that anything that provides advantage becomes of interest to adversaries and competitors, right? So the threat surface is now not just national systems, but the aggregate of systems. And it was proven in front of the whole world over the last year. So what does that mean? That means now that the threat surface extends to the private sector, we need to find a way to ensure that that will be protected, but you protect that differently. And neatly enough, you can't insert the government so strongly that you slow down what our industry does, because in fact, that engine is part of advantage. Being technological leaders is part of advantage. So I think what's interesting about this moment is it's a very busy space. Its benefit has been recognized. Technology advantage has been really diminished. Everyone has access to roughly the same technology. The control of it extends beyond governmental control. And so the security of it, which is disproportionately important to free and open societies, has to be shared between the private sector and the US. And so how do we get awareness and investment in security without retarding the innovation engine that has served us so well and well over the course of time. So I think it's just a really interesting moment to think about how you do that effectively. And we could we could talk about the intersection of space and cyber. They're very similar arcs of advantageous and adversarial use of that space. But I just think in understanding this moment of what's playing out is actually the key to understanding all the pieces that we need to address. Thank you, Sue. And 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 going back to one of your uh, your 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 old leadership roles, do we need a Bill Donovan for where we are in this? So I I, I think you, in oh. many ways, brought that, and and Donovan was able to work with industry in a less bureaucratic kind right. of way. And maybe we'll table that, but I want you to jump into that because uh, I, I kind of feel like we do need that equivalent for this domain. But do you want to jump on that quickly? I'll be, I'll be brief, and then we'll come back to it. Uh, this yep. is a leadership moment. This is a time in aggregate of strategic uncertainty, right? Where just growth without constraint is not going to do it. You have to have a vision of the outcome you want to have happen. But here's the rub. This is not a moment of simplistic outcome. This is not a moment that. where the outcome is holding and protecting what we have because that won't ensure that we have something worth protecting. So you do need, this is a leadership moment. You do need national security leaders to think about how they pursue the mission they've always had in this environment that is so integrated, so connected, so data abundant, so technologically ubiquitous. How do you do that? And the answer is you do it by 
partnership by the government doing what the government does well, allowing the private sector to do what the private sector does well and recognize that, that the citizen is the one that is actually the player in this across the way. So we can go into it later, but, but yeah, it's a moment of leadership. Well, well, well said. And for those who don't know, Bill Donovan was the uh, founder of uh, OSS, which ultimately became the Central Intelligence Agency. But I think you teed it up perfectly for General Quast. Uh, General Quast, uh, uh, for those who don't know, is CEO of Skycorp Incorporated, uh, 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 amazing service inside U.S. Air Force, rising uh, all the way up the ranks. Uh, uh, started as a pilot in uh, um, uh, Desert Storm, so has a lot of uh, scar tissue as well as uh, uh, leadership roles inside inside the Air Force. And what I found a little uh, amazing is he grew up uh, raised in a remote African tribe, so uh, not not exactly the, uh, the the experience everyone has had, but I think it has definitely. Um, influence the way he leads. So General Quast, I want to start. So Sue was talking about the private sector, and I thought maybe we can talk a little bit about the space economy, where it is now, and how you see it expanding uh, in the future. Well, thank you. And uh, I think we've spent some good time understanding the nature of the problem. Uh, what I would uh, kind of state as the beginning of this is that we have historical examples where we have done the same thing because space is not new uh, with regard to the fact that it's interesting. It hasn't ever been done before the way we need to do it. Um, and, and, and it's important to realize that, you know, as I went from the national security role in uniform to the uh, commercial private sector as a CEO, uh, it's based on this understanding that all national security is economic and that uh, the government's role is to protect the industrial base to be stronger, more affordable, more agile, um, and, uh, and, and uh, faster than the competition, no matter where that competition comes from. And sometimes it'll come from one state, sometimes it'll come from another. So ultimately, this is about uh, stoking the fires, as Sue and uh, Mike both said, of the industrial base, the commercial sector, the private sector, and allow the government to put its thumb on the scale in just enough way to help. And the two examples I'll, I'll cite is uh, when we were deciding whether we should have a Navy or not, and our founding fathers wrote in the Federalist Papers for years arguing that point, we decided that we needed one because of the commerce of the open oceans and the need to be able to protect our economy. When airplanes were invented, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the open skies economy of transportation and logistics transformed the world. And what did the government do in both of those situations? They stoked the shipbuilding industry and the fueling stations in the Pacific and the Atlantic and the navigation and all the technologies that are in the layered approach to dominating the open oceans for the commerce and the benefit of all countries to include America because it lifted all boats, no pun intended. When the airplane was invented, look at what um, the American Congress did to stoke the aviation and the aircraft building industry. Uh, so many examples, the Boeing 707, uh, you know, all of these examples. 
And all both of those were just like space where there are multiple technologies that were groundbreaking. So in space, we have, you know, uh, things such as artificial intelligence and uh, and we and we have things like quantum and we have things like laser communications and all of these nuanced technologies. The journey ahead can be simplified by the government partnering, as has been said, with private companies and industry uh, to stoke the industrial base. And our young engineers and scientists will just knock the ball out of the park with all of these inventions that bypass the architecture we have. Because the architecture we have right now was never built or designed to be fast, to be affordable, or to be resilient. I mean, think about that. It was never designed to be fast, to be resilient, and to be affordable. It's just like the internet was never designed to be secure. It was designed to be open so everybody could benefit. And then evil people started using it for bad things. The same is true with space. We can't try to double down on the current architecture and make something secure, fast, and affordable that was never designed to be secure, fast, and affordable. We need to let the industrial base bring us those clever solutions that only business people will think of. Only these young engineers and coders, hardware, software, um, logisticians, uh, rocket scientists, they're the ones that can bring the capabilities faster, cheaper, and more resilient uh, to the government to include rapid access to space. So you can have a, uh, a fulfillment center somewhere where if you need a new satellite to develop a capability, it's in orbit within an hour and not months or years, which is the current battle rhythm or pace of space. So I'll stop there, but the economic foundation is key because without a strong economy, no competition can be successful with any other country because wars, you know, the American uh, way of thinking about war is this decisive battle and, and we win and we go back home. That is not consistent with human nature. It is not consistent with history. Uh, struggles between values of different worldviews, different cultures is a long slugfest of economic power. And if you can't do it cheaper and for longer than your competition, you will eventually lose because humans are stubborn and China is not gonna change their mindset. And America should not change its mindset where we value every human being, no matter where they were born, what they believe, as long as they respect other human beings. This is the game changer in the history of mankind that starts with our constitution. And that's what space is fighting for. Space is the saving grace for American uh, culture, and it grows the economic pie as we watch a global slowdown with 8 billion people. This grows the pie so that industrial base in space can bring unlimited information, unlimited energy, and unlimited resources to people on Earth and people in space working. That's the promise that we're talking about, and it's that simple. Don't overreach, government. Put your thumb on the scale like you did with the Panama Canal with shipbuilding industry, with the aviation industry, that is the key. Hey, General, you, you, you dropped a whole lot of knowledge there and, 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 and one question and, and how you ended. I do want to pick up that discussion with, with others as well. Uh, technology changes, human nature remains consistent. Uh, and, 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 and the reality is, is when we look at these issues, it's dangerous to look at them so narrowly that we don't appreciate the bigger struggle. And that's honestly 
democratic regimes versus autocratic regimes. And I, I really do hope we can pick up on that discussion. But when you started, uh, an Air Force officer was uh, was uh, espousing the, uh, the, the the greatness of Navy, which is uh, a, and shipping, uh, which is a perfect segue to our next speaker, uh, Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, retired. Mark, uh, Mark and I have known each other way too long. Um, work in cyber before it was cool, and uh, and 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 he not only directs CSC 2.0, he also directs the, uh, uh, the CTI at uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And bottom line was uh, did yeoman's work as executive director for the Cyber Solarium Commission. Mark, you've got the you've got the tough job here, and and you know I have some opinions on all this, but but to, to unpack our paper a little bit. And uh, and and I thought we'd start specifically, sort of getting a sense of what are the three big things that the executive branch should do to get us uh, closer to goal here. Hey, well, thanks, Frank. It's great to be with you and my friends uh, Sue and um, and uh, Steve Quast. Now, I will say, uh, Killer Quast, I've never heard. You know, I always rely on him for a strong um, spousal of why we're at at heart of maritime nation. Um, but look, on our report, I think the first thing I would say is the key finding that Sharon, you and I had, which is uh, that we uh, we needed to strengthen the space systems, name it a U.S. national critical infrastructure. And in doing so, we would close the current gaps um, both and, and signal both at home and abroad that the United States is committed to the resilience and security of space systems. We also went and defined what space systems were. You know, we, we looked at the whole ecosystem from ground to orbit, um, sensors and signals, you know, data and payloads, and the critical technologies, economic opportunity, and supply chains in space. So it's a big issue. And, and to unpack that, we, you know, the key point was that it needed to be designated a national critical infrastructure. And that, uh, to give the background on that, that that's those are infrastructures um, detailed in Presidential Policy Directive 21, which is a a 10 year old uh, Obama administration uh, directive that really should have been updated, you know, three years ago, seven you know seven years ago, and uh, five years ago, and seven years ago. It's, it was meant to be, um, you know, consistently updated. You know, three administrations in a row really failed to to do that at this point. Um, but there is a, a a way to designate critical sectors on the fly. The Secretary of Homeland Security can do that. And in fact, we designated a subsector in 2017, the election subsector underneath the government uh, sector. Um, so we need to designate that. And the reason we do is because it meets those three requirements. You know, there's three things that can make you a critical infrastructure national security, economic, you know, uh, involvement in economic productivity, or, uh, or involvement in public health and safety. And in, in space is all three. You know, we clearly need that. So the first and foremost thing I would say is we need to designate a, a sec, a, a, we need to designate space systems, a national critical infrastructure sector. And I don't think we should wait for the rewrite of PPD 21 that the Biden administration is promising because they, they're good people working hard. But they say things like, we'll have a new PPD 21 in September. And my answer to that is which September? Because I don't think it'll be this September. We can do this now. The Secretary of Homeland Security can send to the president through the, uh, National Security Advisor and the Homeland Security Advisor, a request to designate it. And I think that should be happening now. So the very first thing we have to do is that. And, and you know, tied to that is, you know, which federal agency is going to be the lead for supporting it? Because that is a key element of PPD 21. You know, we landed, 
there were a lot of ideas in here, and for sure, no one agreed on any one. There was not a consensus. But we looked at it hard, and I think the area where we landed was the right one, which is that you need a sector uh, risk management agency for the overall sector that's NASA. I think they're uniquely positioned, have the relationships. They really get at those that economic, you know, they, they get at the uh, at all the different elements, uh, national security, economic security, public health and safety of this issue. And um, but I do recognize that, like many other sectors, transport, energy, uh, we need subsectors and there needs to be a Department of Defense, sub a, a sector for defense and intelligence issues, probably managed by the Department of Defense as they do the defense industrial base. That subsector, and then I think you need a subsector for communications because the, Fed, the FCC has already got a very strong relationship in there. So I think with that, you could do it. If I could say one other thing the government has to do, they've got to set up the supporting um, ligature around that. And that's the, the GCC, the government coordinating councils and the sector coordinating councils. And these sound boring and bureaucratic, and they are, but they're critical. The sectors that are run well, and I point to the Department of the, the Energy sector, have great SECs and GCCs where the participants are the CEOs of companies. You know, Tom Fanning, uh, you know, for years was the chairman of the electrical SEC, deeply involved with the government and, and brought, you know, a commitment from his company and got the commitments of the, the other CEOs that were there alongside him. Uh, and so in my mind, the, you know, setting up, naming it a sector risk, man, a, a national critical infrastructure, putting NASA in charge of the sector with two carved out clear subsectors for defense and intelligence and communications, and then really getting the GCC, which is the government coordination right, with the SCC, the sector coordination. Uh, if we can do that, we're going to really put ourselves in a good spot. And we don't have time. This isn't like a, well, you know, in the next administration, we'll get, no. This is a this year thing. So that uh, so that we can get moving. Hey, Mark, just to underscore, this is not an academic exercise. This actually has real implications in terms of designation and, and prioritization, not only signaling to uh, uh, industry, which I think has to be uh, uh, integral to, to the way forward, but also to our allies and to our adversaries. We're, we're putting a few markers in the sand with this. Yes. No, exactly that. It, it, to me, it's it's the achieve it's the achievement. Uh, you know, it's the it's what you get out of being creating a critical infrastructure, and it's the signaling to industry that we're serious here. Industry is asking for this sort. They're not asking for NASA or DoD or FCC. They're asking for engagement, and they're asking for the for the government to be more involved in these. And, and I'll tell you, I love the, the the Space Council. I'm glad we create the National Space Council. I'm glad we created it. But you, you know, I worked at the NSC for three years. You worked there in the White House. You know that you can coordinate things from the White House. You can't do the blocking and tackling of leading. That's done by agencies. That's done by the national, the DNI or the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State or the Homeland Security Director. That is who gets things done. The, the, the White House is, a, in theory, an agile, streamlined organization to coordinate, I had to choke a little bit of that down as I said it, but it's an agile, streamlined organization to get the president's intent transmitted to those federal agencies. And then the base council at the sitting at the White House like that can can communicate that. It can't lead it. The leading's got to come from your sector risk management agency, 
your, and as I said, the GCCs, SCCs, and look, and NASA, they can do this. Um, there's some things we're going to have to do. We'll talk about that. But, but to me, that, that is the critical role. Thank you, Mark. And I want to pull uh, uh, Sue and Steve in on this discussion, and then I want to pull the thread on Steve's points versus uh, autocratic, democratic, because uh, I know that that's something uh, Mike Rogers has been very eloquent on. But before we go to, to that set of question, you know, when I came into this study, I immediately thought of the Title 10 and Title 50 equities, and I thought this had to be DOD. Um, and, and the reality is, is we got uh, great input from some of the top subject matter experts. And I, I want to thank them in terms of the, the, the folks we interviewed uh, across the board on, on some of these issues. Um, but where I ended up was, yes, the Title 10, Title 50 national security mission is critical. The Department of Defense still must and should play a key role in all that. But space is much broader than simply those equities. I, I mean, Sue, Steve, uh, we'll start with you, Sue. I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that because I came in, I ended up in a very different place. I, I normally know what I want to write before we, uh, we jump into something, but in this case, uh, I, I, I pivoted. So I'd be curious, uh, we all pivoted and when I say that, uh, all of our authors. So Sue, Steve, what would you, what would you think on this? So I'll jump first, and then Steve, you you fix it and make it better. Um, uh, let's see. You know, in 2023, national security includes economic security, right? It includes it includes um, uh, the systems we're producing, the commercial systems, how you protect, how you assure, how you create advantage is not the same as it was in 1947 or 1963 or 1996 or any of those years. How you assure national security now must go through economic security, must involve participation with the commercial sector, cannot be controlled in the way you control purely governmental assets. And so I think you're right that um, we have benefited from defense and intel leadership over all these years, but they have a particular view of how you maintain advantage. We need to include uh, what commerce is doing, um, what transportation is doing, what NASA is doing, how we protect the companies in the advance. So I think you're right that it cannot be just left to the department or the national security community as narrowly defined in order to uh, ensure that we have advantage in this space. Um, so I, I think your instinct to try and come up with a way to do that is good. I think uh, you've done that by this consortia approach, which any, everyone will worry about because that isn't uh, the strong suit of the government. What I would hope is that this consortium recognizes the imperative and it does a little bit what the SEC did, did back in the 30s, which says, we're going to set the imperatives and the standards, but we are going to allow the private sector to input how we achieve that. And so you'll get this benefit of the government setting the framework 
and the standard and the private sector saying, okay, how's, here's how we can meet that. So I think you're on the right track, but it's going to have to go beyond just a governmental solution. It's going to have to include them. Well said. And, and, and yes, we've been long on nouns, short on verbs on a lot of these issues. And, 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 and if we don't pull the private sector in, not only a seat at the table, but a, a front row seat at the table, uh, hand in glove, I, I don't think we get that far. Uh, General, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on all this. Yeah, for me, uh, the, the, this really starts with a recognition by the executive branch and the legislative branch uh, that we are in an economic competition with other great powers uh, that want their values to be the dominant uh, predicate for the economic global uh, uh, enterprise. And, and so it's, it's not yet we all, all of us on this panel, have lived through leading through leading change. You know this disruptive reality that new things threaten old models of business and governance, uh, regulatory, statutory, and so things need to change. And nobody likes change. So for me, the three things you need, we all need to focus on if we want to do this is one, uh, the recognition that we've got a competition on our hands that could threaten our ability to protect our society, our economy. And our, and our government. And the second is the, the leadership. When you look at historical examples where we had to insert capability that was going to be disruptive to a certain component of our government or our economy, you needed to pick leaders that know how to lead change in large bureaucracies. You need to have the money protected by the top level of the executive and legislative branches so it doesn't get swiped away by uh, you know, an appropriations act uh, you know, at the last minute or and you need, uh, you know, the, the, the person to be protected, the leader to be protected. Uh, when we were trying to usher in uh, the the uh, uh, the triad to uh, combat the, the fact that Russia had built a nuclear bomb and was building rockets uh, to launch those in intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, the only, you know, General Schriever was put in charge of building those rockets for America. And the first 13 rockets blew up. And the only reason that money didn't get stolen from him after the second rocket blew up was because he played golf with President Eisenhower. Okay, now we don't need to play golf uh, with the president, but we need that recognition and Congress. He had allies in Congress. Without Congress and the White House on board, without the right leader of courage that knows their way around the bureaucratic knife fights in the back alleys, uh, in, in committees and in meetings that take place and without a personal protective ideology where they pick the right leader and they protect that leader to achieve success. Without those three components, no matter where you put this, no matter how you divide it up, it will fail. So we need to move fast. And the only way to move fast is the right leader, the right money protected and the individual leader protected by the executive and legislative branches. Thank you, Steve. And Mike, I want to bring you in because I know I think you have a hard stop soon. But Steve brought up the uh, cultural sets of issues. And, and I, I always grew up thinking the American way, the democratic uh, uh, process is the only way. And I still believe it is. You stood up a, uh, uh, an, an organization called LEAD, which is uh, uh, very much behind uh, that philosophy, which is to leadership to ensure the American dream. And, 
And when you really get down to it, the secret sauce, the in, ingredients that make uh, uh, the American dream so unique is not just the traditional hard edge of power, but all the other innovative uh, uh, components that, that let us lead. Is this hyperbole? Are, are we, am I over hyperventilating here? Or are we at a point where technology is a double-edged sword and, 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 and we, we can't take for granted that our democratic norms will drive the way forward. I'd be curious what some of your thoughts are uh, on that and then bring in the panel and then go uh, a little further into the panel. But I, before we lose you, I wanted to make sure we, yeah. we, we give you an opportunity to share some thoughts. Yeah, thanks Frank. I, I, I don't think we have two or four years uh, to dawdle on this problem set. We have never really faced uh, a strategic competitor like China. So think of the Soviet Union only with money. Uh, and what China was very successful at doing where the uh, Soviet Union was not is the Soviet Union was a little bit more brute force and they used their brute force element uh, to lock people up and send them to the back of their houses and tell them not to come out until they were told to do so. The Chinese are, uh, Communist Party is doing something very different. They're using the economic power that they have uh, in an extortionate way to isolate resources and na uh, natural resources around the world for their own uh, successful economic future in a way that the United States doesn't have a consistent policy between national security, uh, economic security, and energy security, which we didn't mention today, is equally as important uh, as all of those elements. And we haven't lashed all that together to say, okay, if we're going to compete and we're going to win, which we can, uh, we are going to have to start lashing things together uh, across the government. One of the things the Admiral Mark was talking about uh, kind of sent a chill down my spine about, hey, we're better at this if we have a coordinating body and then a GCC body that coordinates with another GCC body that comes up with. I don't think we have time for any of that. I would have one person in charge of making this happen. And what you'd have to do is try to eliminate much of the red, I call them red cards, right? Everybody gets a red card. Very few people get a green card. We need more green card holders in the government to make sure that we're advancing at the pace we have to. And that means coordinating resources. Yep, that means you're going to take something out of somebody's sandbox. There's going to be screaming that you'll hear in California from Washington, D.C. But if we don't do this and we don't do it soon, we will not be able to keep pace with China's investment in the next generation of technology. And I tell people, for, for listeners here, if you're thinking, I, I don't quite get it, we're, we're, we're good with technology, they're good with technology, but you've talked about this, Frank, about this clash of values. So what the, uh, China wants to be data dominant by 2025. Uh, and what are they doing with the data that they're extracting from their citizens involuntarily? Uh, they created a social credit system. That social credit system, you get a score as a Chinese citizen by the Communist Party. If you don't do well enough in that social credit score, they can deny you access to bus tickets, train tickets, airplane tickets, the right to travel anywhere else in their own country. Uh, and there are some millions of Chinese who have fallen victim to this. Maybe it's a tweet that says President Xi isn't always cracked up to be. Whoops, that's a negative score. And if you think about what the Chinese are trying to do in data, data dominance, it's not just in China, it's gonna be internationally. You wanna do business, 
and they're the large, uh, you know, the largest supplier of fill in the blank, guess what? You don't hit their social credit score. You as American business person, you're not going to get an opportunity to compete in that space. That's how serious this is on that level. That is a clash of values uh, between the United States and China. And it's happening now. This isn't 10 years from now. They're already doing this. They're in making those investments uh, to beat us in space, to beat us. You know, their, their Navy just surpassed the number of ships of the United States Navy. You know, as, as they say in the, the military, quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, and the fact that they're using their economics to take France is a great example. They're using their economic uh, power of government that they lash up with their military and intelligence uh, part of their government, pushing France around. And that's all about contracts in the future. And what Macron fell trapped to was this notion that China was basically saying there's good things that can happen to French technology companies in China or bad things that can happen to French technology in China. And he stumbled around on the national stage wondering if the United States was the right bet. We should take away this notion that you should bet against the United States any day of the week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 12 months of the year, it will always be a bad bet to the United States. But what does that mean to us? We have to get our act together. We have to stop spending so much money we can't afford. The interest on our national debt will be bigger than the Department of Defense very soon. Uh, the fact that we, China is having eighth graders uh, learn quantum mechanics. Last year, think of this, 69% of eighth graders across the United States could not read at the eighth grade level. We are in a crisis mode here uh, across uh, our, our value system in the United States. China knows who they are and are moving out. I suggest we have to do the same. And I would go through the government here. This is really important for all of us, I think. If you really ask the Admiral, do you want all these coordinating bodies and this group who has to do ask the, this group? If you have to have five meetings to get a decision, we lose. We need, we need to streamline government, as you said, Frank, early on in this OSS model, Tell you, Congress needs to say, here's what we need to happen. They can do that in conjunction with folks who are a lot smarter in the defense and intelligence business and have them guide that decision. Tell them that's what we need. Give them the resources and say, come back in six months and 12 months and tell us how you're doing, how we're going to compete with China. This notion that we got to spread it around and have, uh, you know, the battle of the inboxes is really costing us in a way it's hard to visualize to the rest of the world. If you're in that system and you talk to these folks who are doing it, they're pulling their hair out. Let's uh, let's let them uh, you know get back to stop pulling their hair out and start doing really creative, innovative things. Uh, and it happens in space and cyber and our in our air force. We need to have decision makers in a vertical getting these things done. And then maybe you know what after we win this technological battle, if they want to go back to the battle of the inboxes, which is a very American trait. You know, have them, let them have at it. But until then, we have got to get our act together. We just don't have a lot of time on this. Hey, hey, Fred, Mike, me, thank you. Thank you for your made, leadership here, Sue. I, I, I'm going to let you, Mark, because in fairness, I, I think what Mark was proposing is actually streamline. It's taking the spaghetti chart and, and streamlining the process. But one thing I just wanted to mention. The, and, and this is the highest, uh, I, I wish we wrote this report, but the Australian Strategic Policy Institute did a study recently that looked at 44 key areas of technology. 37 of those, China is leading the United States. So that, that's the first empirically based study I have seen. 
and all in the areas we're discussing right now. So it's not leading in basket weaving. It's leading in key technology areas that uh, uh, we cannot afford to uh, left, be left behind. But Mark, I'm going to let you jump into that quickly because uh, I, I know that um, uh, there's more there. And then, Sue, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. So Mark, jump on in, please. Real quick, I will say also on that, abs- on that study, the seven we're leading in are a seven good one. Don't, don't, don't short sell it. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's embarrassing that we've really fallen down. So our, you know, I may not have made it clear. Our our goal is to put one agency in charge. Um, it's and it happens to be NASA. What we are trying to do with the the sector coordinating council, I probably didn't explain right. That's actually the private sector. And what's different, and I think what's different than Schriever experienced back in the nineteen fifties, or or Rickover experienced in the nineteen fifties and sixties, where you could have the government lead. It was the government owned all the tools of research and development. Nowadays, I think the private sector is actually in a much better position to provide the guidance that's to provide advice and, and counsel. So the one thing where I would say before I had a, a strong leader move out, the group he needs to talk to or she needs to talk to is that, that sector coordinate council. And that's where and we've seen that, like I said, in energy with with someone like Tom Fanny, because what happens after he provides his advice is. He then helps implement it within the industry. Uh, and, and even when it's not exactly what he might have wanted or the sector might have wanted, they do a pretty good job of that. And I just think it's, that is the one area where the government probably during the Cold War didn't need to consult as much with industry. But in the competition room with China, some of our frontline fighters, soldiers, so to speak, are in the private sector. So I think that, that, that that's where you got to get it. And right now, they don't have a place. Without us, desert, you know, putting NASA in charge and saying you're it, we don't have a. The government does a pretty good job, and I agree with this, of setting up, you know, fifty different places to go to, and after a while, you just have a completely diluted uh, leadership process. And and uh, so that's our, our goal is one throat to choke the, the Senator King, our our uh, Salarium Commission leader, used to say, and then strong input from the private sector into that decision making. I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because that is, I think, the differentiator is the private sector role in all of this. And the this would be a CEO led. So not to go back to World War II analogies, but one of my heroes was Vannevar Bush, who sort of brought industry and it grew into the defense industrial base. But it initially started with ways that uh, government could really lean on the best thinkers and minds and and uh, and resources that the country had. And and the truth is, is we need the same. But, Sue, I know we've had some discussions around this. Anything you want to weigh in on uh, here? Yeah. Um, uh, Mike, I'm just like you. I always have three things. So I'll say three things on, on this topic. Um, uh, I think I think one of the areas where uh, the government does need to get involved in ways that it hasn't and that we've been loath to do is I think we need to get involved in the standards bodies. Um, uh, we have been philosophically loath to do that because we so wanted our the industry to drive what those are. But as we're moving into an area where you have more platform technologies than absolute technologies, 
um, our, our adversaries and competitors are controlling those standards bodies. And as you set the standards, you do, do some. So I think standard setting is in international bodies is something the government need, might need to look at. Um, uh, the second thing is I think we need to look at our whole ecosystem that uh, is involved in technological superiority. So that's everything from investment in research um, to students in schools, to foundational education, um, to the labs, to the company, just to make sure that it is all tuned and not fighting against each other um, with different rules and different imperatives. And you see this um, when it comes to students and what are we doing with immigration? You, you can't exclude foreign students from the United States because that would be antithetical to the advantage that we have had historically. We want to attract the best talent. You can't then simultaneously drive them out of the country as soon as that they have a degree. So you, we need to tune the ecosystem for technological advantage. Um, and then I think the third thing that I'll end on is, uh, you heard me mention that this is a time where every technology is available to everyone. What that means is that the person that can put it to clever use fastest is the one that wins. And one of the things that's going on right now is we don't have a technology problem. We have a use problem. We just aren't driving it into use as much as we need to. And whether that is the Defense Department figuring out a way to use this really incredibly emergent commercial space market or whether that are some of these really new technologies getting deployed into the field to transform how we engage. Um, I, think, I think focusing not just on the technologies, but getting them into use will be an important part of advantage. And then I lied, I have a fourth. Um, and and I, I think we'll get to cyber at some point, but I will say that cyber attacks are really an assault on trust, right? And erosion of trust disproportionately hurts free and open societies. And so as you have space be the great enabler for the way society and security moves, making sure that that is protected against those who would erode our ability to trust it is an important part of you know this, this discussion we've been having about systems um, success, not just individual uh, performance success. Sue, thank you. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought up how application of technology. I mean, even in the warfighting domain, if you go back in history, it's the application and the use of technology that, 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 that changed the game. Not so much what was invented. It, it was how it was applied. And you can go all the way back to uh, Attila, the Hun, and, and how he uh, was able to use different means technologies to, to achieve his objectives. So I'm really, really glad you brought that up because that often gets lost uh, in the discussion. And I think that's part of the secret sauce. That's in the DNA of the United States where we do better than the rest of the world because we're not trying to necessarily control uh, the outcome. And, and I don't mean to be uh, too, too blunt on that, but, but that is an area that I think uh, if we Harness and harness right, we can uh, uh, have reap big rewards. And 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 it's when when you look at space, it's very much like cyber. It is its own domain. 
whether it's war fighting or economic or you name it, it's its own domain, but it transcends all the others. And cyber transcends air, land, sea, space. And in space, it transcends air, land, sea, cyber. And, um, and Mark, I'd like to sort of get back a little bit to the paper. And I know we're running out of time here, but what are some of the congressional uh, uh, priorities that you think are worth um, uh, sharing today? Yeah, thanks. So, um, you know, we first, Congress has done a good job laying out what a sector risk management agency is. The Solarium Commission came up with some language and with some alterations, eventually became law. So once NASA or whomever is designated as leader, it'll tell them what to do. And, I'll, and here's Congress's number one goal, uh, objective. They need to resource that because the one way this will fail is if we tell any federal agency except the Department of Defense that is like adding war budget. If you tell any federal agency, hey, do this thing on the side, and we're not going to resource you, because what will happen is they will figure out how to do whatever you ask for the minimum amount of money, achieving the minimum, whatever you described is the minimum level of effort. So what, what Congress needs to do, I think, and you know, the way we are, uh, and I know McCrary's the same way, we, we put a number down when it's time. And so we said first year needs to be $15 million, but it really needs to build up to 30 to $45 million. That's how much it costs to manage a sector, because what you have to do is be out and present, working with the private sector, um, you, know, it's, you know, doing risk management, understanding, looking through the different supply chain issues that exist, and then investigating this space systems as probably the highest upside of needed research and development of any critical infrastructure in the United States. You need money to do this. So Congress's first job is resource whomever's picked as a sector risk management agency. The other group, I got to give a big shout out to the private sector. They have created a, a legitimate space ISAC with a watch center without the government being focused on this. I mean, that's, that tells you just how, just how, how clear the, the need for, you know, for the government to get to, to, to step up and play its role is that the private sector in the absence of the government has gone and done many of the things that I wish other sectors had at this level. The space ISAC is more advanced than many other ISACs um, that have, in theory, government participation and help. That, it, the problem in space, of course, is that you know, you're going to have to integrate this effort with what is a very a, a good effort by the U.S. Department of Defense to grow and develop and nurture both Space Force and Space Command. We're going to be integrally involved with this, and that you to build that ligature over, you know. It, and with the, at the speed that Sue, Steve, and Representative Rogers have said is necessary, means we have to get involved now. So in my mind, the SRMA designation has to happen this calendar year, this fiscal year, and the, you know, the budget being reviewed right now, there needs to be a plus up to whomever they designate as SRMA. And look, in the big picture of the federal budget, this is 15 million the first year, but you gotta get it there. Mark, thank you. I, I mean, all things said and done, it's marrying up authority with resources and 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 leadership, and and I think that's the uh, the case we want to make. Since I, I, so the tyranny of time requires, I'd be a little bit of a tyrant. I'm going to let everyone sort of say their last uh, parting shots and. And Steve, since we haven't heard from you, you triggered the last discussion. Why don't we start with you and then uh, go to Mark and end with Sue and 
Um, let me let me uh, let me turn to you, Steve. So we didn't really when we discussed the economy. I, I know that uh, there's a whole lot going on there, and I know I'm asking for parting thoughts. But I know in our interview, you were really thoughtful in terms of exploiting minerals in space. It's not just the traditional industries we're looking at. We're going to build new industries that are going to be massive. So I'd like like for you to touch on that then say your closing shot, and then we'll go to Mark and Sue. Okay, well, I'll be very brief, but uh, most average citizens in any country in the world do not realize how uh, the, the universe is filled with resources at our fingertips, literally a shorter journey than uh, a ship going to Africa. Uh, and all of those resources at our, our, at our fingertips with current technology today, uh, it is tr profound whether it's mining that, turning it into 3D printing material that can be 3D printed in space or on Earth. I mean, um, space can benefit the human race with unlimited resources, unlimited information, and unlimited energy. That's the reality. That's what we're tapping into. So I'll leave it at that. But I want your listeners uh, to leave this conversation with a tremendous uh, lightning bolt of uh, excitement and hope. And I'll, I'll use the fact that I grew up in a different world paradigm and a different culture. And I never really knew the American culture other than my parents, but I was off running around as my dad was a cultural anthropologist and missionary. My mom was medical, helping the kids and the women of the, of the tribe. And when I came to America and I saw this free society and this constitution, this is why I joined the national security arena. And I will tell you, having traveled the world and lived around the world and, and been a student of culture, history, human nature, and how technology changes history, everybody else in the world fears America. And if we want to get out of this, we build on our strength. And why they fear us is because we can innovate our way out of any problem, economic, military, informational, you name it. Uh, we are the most innovative culture on the planet because we believe that the respect for every human being is in their brain and in their heart, not in their money or their status. Um, and we don't pick winners and losers based on what we think. We base it on the performance of the idea. Uh, this is why we are going to do well. And I am in the private sector now and the commercial sector. And I'll tell you, the software engineers and the hardware engineers that work for us that are you know young and they 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 understand and they believe in the human spirit in protection the protection of people um they are agnostic of culture but they believe in the values and they will find a way around all these things we need to be careful not to pick winners and losers in the government and let our youngsters free and they will find a way business leaders will find a way government will not so that's an important distinction between the roles of government and the private sector. And thank you for letting me uh, encourage everybody that we are going to win this race. It's just a matter of time and urgency. And the urgency is now, like Mark said, we got to do it this year or we're going to be in trouble. Thanks. Steve, thank you for uh, a, a very optimistic ending to all this. I'd add a third. So brain, heart, and hand. Because at the end of the day, it's that application piece that I think uh, uh, is 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 so so important. And and I don't want to get on a soapbox and talk about how academia has to be more applied. But but at the end of the day, it's those three 
criteria, just to give you the third. Uh, thank you for that uh, uh, optimistic message. Mark, anything on the paper? And I'll, when we close, leave, uh, make sure to uh, let people know where to access the paper. But, but any, uh, any parting thoughts here? We argued for leadership authorities and resources. We felt protected space system is going to require a you know, good public-private partnership, a real one, because of the role the private sector is already playing, and that the appropriate sector risk management agency is, is going to be have a demanding task, but NASA can do this. And I would just go back to, you know, you've, you alluded to something like this. <clears throat> Having a policy without resources is rhetoric. So it's get a policy now resource that agency now and stand stand back and let them lead uh, the public private partnership. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Sue, last thoughts? Um, all threats and opportunities are going to go to and through space. That means it's worth advancing and assuring. And because it is now shared, between public and private sectors. This is a great time for the government to do what it does really well, which is to set a mark far on the horizon, use its deep pockets, and to eliminate sand in the gears and to let the private sector what do what it does better than anything else, and we'll be on our way. Sue, thank you. Mark, thank you. Steve, thank you. And I know we we uh, we had to lose Mike Rogers earlier. I, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, bottom line is, uh, with this event, with the paper, they're all meant to tee up and elevate issues that, uh, if we don't take seriously, uh, we're in deep kinche. Uh, if we do take seriously, we will. Uh, uh, get out in front of our uh, adversaries and, and quite honestly, back to the cultural principles uh, uh, of, of what is all underneath that. Uh, thank you for uh, all those listening in. We had big numbers. Thank you for those tuning in on C-SPAN. Um, and uh, for those that are interested in the paper, it can be downloaded at the CSC 2.0 site at FDD's website, as well as uh, the McCrary Institute's website. So thank you. Onward and upward. And, uh, uh, and, and that's a wrap. Thank you all.